Last week we uh, looked at, uh, started the subject of worry and looking at emotions, and we zeroed in on Matthew, the sixth chapter, where Jesus hit um, anxiety, which is probably just a synonym of, of worry, and told them not to be anxious. And in that passage, he gave uh, two reasons for their problem. Anybody remember the two reasons? Uh, the, about two reasons he gave for handling worry. So number, number one. We don't know. As far as we're concerned, you're going to have to worry about today. Okay. He number one, he says that uh, your problem is you're you're anxious about the future. You got enough problems in today, so to concentrate. And then we read some material in this book by Dale Carnegie on how to stop worrying and start uh, living, and he pointed out statement after statement that the starting point is to begin to put your emphasis and your energy on today. And we noted that worry about the future can actually paralyze you. That, that you can be thinking so much over there that you don't do here, and then when you don't do here, it causes more problems over here. And, and the same way, uh, uh, worry is the opposite of guilt. Guilt is concern about the past. And a, and a person can be so concerned about past mistakes and past sins that they're just immobilized here and they just constantly dwell in the past. But you've got worry on one side, guilt on the other, and either one of them can immobilize you. Well, Jesus, uh, number one, he tells us that he'll take care of the past completely. Uh, that he gives us the forgiveness of our sins. We have to be willing to trust him and, and to believe it. But if we do, he'll give us the forgiveness of our sins. And then concerning the future, he tells us, dwell on the day, and he says, you and I don't know the future, but God does. And so therefore, and, and, and there's no other being in the universe that knows the future except God. Therefore, it only makes sense to place trust in God above everyone else. God is the only being that is looking at everything from the standpoint of he knows it before it even happens. That's how well in tune to the future he is. It's just all the present from God's standpoint. Now, for our mind to fully benefit from this, this is where I think that even the study of evidence and all is real important. Uh, it's difficult for my mind to comprehend God who knows the future as vividly as he does the present and the past. But the evidence of it is in the scriptures. In the same way, it's difficult for my mind to see how a blind man can be given his sight just like that. But if I saw it, I'd have to believe it. Well, in the same way, in the scriptures, that time after time I can read of prophets who spoke of things many times hundreds of years into the future, and they didn't even fully understand all the particulars themselves, and then another prophet would speak, and another prophet would speak, and then I can come down the streams of time, and I can see how the time after time after time, uh, these guys hit the nail on the head. Uh, even to the point of calling people by name over 150 years before they were born, such as Cyrus, and calling him a servant of God, uh, and calling into existence, and, and then their downfall, kingdoms, before they were even born. And he talks about their birth and then how they would fall. And so through that, 
we want, look at that, and we, then we wind up like David in Psalms 139. He said, such knowledge is too wonderful for me, I cannot attain to it. But yet he acknowledged that it was so. And so that we with our finite minds have difficulty, but the proof of the pudding is in the testing. And then we can take and, and get the documents, we can establish their age, and we can see the fulfillment of those prophecies. And so then we can know that, and we've got every reason then to put our trust and know that no, God is not time-bound. Uh, he looks at the future just as vividly as he does the present. So, and, and Jesus then tells us to quit being anxious, but to concern ourselves with the things of the present time. Now, what we do to start with is uh, start off on a low note, and that is just, uh, but at the same time, uh, maybe get everybody interested in seeing what can happen to you, uh, and then look for how important the cure is. And this chapter is on what worry uh, can actually do to you. And all these statements are, are from doctors that he uses. Uh, he says, um, uh, number one, one out of every ten people, he says, will wind up having a ner nervous breakdown in the United States. And so we talk about our prosperous and high standard of living and how many advantages that we have, and yet one out of ten will have a nervous breakdown. He gives an example here of an individual who died of a heart attack at 61 who had amassed millions at the time he died. And he said, we look at that person while he's living his life, and, says, and what he's trying to say is we have false ideas about success. And so we look at him and say he's very successful because after all he's making millions of dollars and he has a heart attack and dies at 61. And then he says, my father died without having anything, but he was 89 years of age when he died. So who was more successful? Uh, the guy that lived to be 89 and didn't have any riches? Uh, and let's say for the sake of argument that all things else are equal. And, and the, or the guy that uh, lived to be 61. I mean, would you rather have another 20 plus years of life uh, and less money or have more money and, and give up the life for it? And then the statement he made, just like we have the statement of, uh, if you gain the whole world, you don't have anything, you lose your soul. Well, then his observation is the same. If you gain millions, but lose your health, or if your business is the most successful around, or if your career is the most successful around, but you lose your health in the process, in reality, you cannot enjoy anything without at least a certain level of health. Okay? Now, keep in mind when we deal with this that we're not saying that if you don't worry, you're not going to get sick. You will. We're all going to die. And we're not saying that, that no matter what you do, you can do away with any genetic problem that may be in any one of our genes. Uh, you know, that is given, we, we can't touch that. But whatever the aging process is, uh, my lifespan may be, through my genetics, limited to 65. You see, I don't know. Another one's, person's may be limited to 105 through his genetics. But the point is, I will get the maximum out of whatever my genetics have given me uh, just as the other person will. And so we can get the maximum out of whatever we have got by putting these things into practice. 
Uh, the Nobel Prize winner, uh, Dr. Alex Carroll, said, businessmen who do not know how to fight worry die young, and so do housewives, horse doctors, and bricklayers. And then he goes on to say, another Dr. Gober, 70% of all patients who come to physicians could cure themselves if they only got rid of their fears and worries. Don't think for a moment that I mean that their ills are imaginary. Their, Ill, their ills are real as a throbbing toothache and sometimes a hundred times more serious. I refer to such illnesses as nervous indigestion, stomach ulcers, heart disturbances, insomnia, headaches, and some types of para, para, being paralyzed. These illnesses are real. Uh, I know what I'm talking about. He goes on to say fear is the cause of worry. Okay, now pause there. There is no worry without there first being fear. Okay, we, we maybe don't like to say that we're afraid or that we're scared or that we have fear, and we use the term worry. But in reality, uh, think on it. How can you worry without first having fear? And so it's, it's the, you have to be afraid of something. Uh, and the consequences. Right, it may be the consequences of something now, it may be something in the future, but there is no way of having worry without first having fear. All right. Remember the statements in, like when God sent Joshua out to go into the land of Canaan, and he told him not to fear, but be courageous, and then he gave a reason, for I am with you. That was always a statement, be courageous, uh, don't be afraid, for I am with you. Remember when the twelve went in to spy out the land, and ten of them came back scared out of their mind, and Joshua and Caleb, they saw exactly the same thing. The others were negative, they were depressed, they were down, and they made everybody else negative and depressed and down. And the reason they were is because they were scared. Joshua and Caleb saw exactly the same thing, and, and what they were thinking about is, hey, remember what God did to the Egyptian army? Remember how he split the Red Sea? Remember how he delivered us? Oh, has God lost his power? And the same God that did that will handle these people also. We can take them. And so their courage came from pausing to think about the God they walked with and what God had done in the past. And their confidence is that if God has done this in the past, he can also take care of the future. And so based on that, two people saw the same thing. Now what we see in the spies, I believe we see in life too. I believe any number of times, a lot of times people who worry all the time want to think, well, you know, if you had my problems, then, then you would also. But you can just give too many examples where you have several people who have the same type things that they're dealing with in life, and yet they will approach it in completely different ways. And it's a, it's a choice. That, uh, and I believe part of it is just pausing to think. And, and thinking about, sort of like Danny's lesson a few weeks back, about how big our God is. And that he is in control, and I can trust him. Uh, he's there, and I can trust him. Uh, I know that nothing is going to happen to me that I'm not able to stand up to, uh, whatever, whatever it may be. And, and simply that trust in God is one that has the future 
And I think you think about all the things God has done in the past and realize he makes the same promise that he will cause all things to work together for the good of those that love him. Now, if we really believe that and know it, then we can't have fear. And I think when we do have fear, now I'm not saying I don't have fear and I don't worry either. Don't misunderstand me. I'm talking about the goal that we shoot for. And there's any number of times when I have to stop and I catch myself waking up in a cold sweat or, or worried about something, and I have to stop and go back and reevaluate myself. And I'm saying that those times will come to me again, and I know it, and they're going to come to each of you. And I'm saying the key is right there when you're in the process of that anxiety and that worry and is to remember that, hey, I have this because I'm scared of something. And so be honest with it. And then ask yourself, what am I afraid of? And what is the worst that can happen. And then begin to think about your relationship with God and how much that God loves you. And, and one thing, and your love for God is not based on what's happening to you at any moment in time. You may not understand that. Your love for God is, is based on the fact you know He gave Jesus to die for you. So obviously He loves you, even though you may have cancer or heart problems or whatever it is. If you have any doubt about God's love, just look at Jesus on the cross. And so even though that helps us, even though we don't understand this present situation. And so we think about the one that we trust, and then we think of his promise to be with us, and then we have the attitude that, well, whatever happens, that uh, God can allow it, or he can intervene. Uh, and remember uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? They're going to toss them into the furnace, and, and what was their statement? God is able to. Okay. They, they didn't know for sure, did they? they? They didn't know whether God would choose to deliver them because after all, righteous people get killed. And they didn't know. But they looked the, the opposing people in the face and they said, our God is able. And uh, just like Jesus looked Pilate right in the face and says, Pilate, you can't do anything except God allows you to do it. I could call on 12 legions of angels if God wanted to deliver me. And so you can approach, I believe, cancer or heart problems or a, an operation or a difficulty of somebody else in your family by saying, uh, my God is able. Now, uh, I don't know all the facts, and God may allow something to happen that I don't understand at the moment, but I know God is able. And if he wants to change the situation in some way, then he can. And, and that's where our, our confidence comes in. Oh, he says, uh, let's see. Um, Follow a good commentary on that might be Proverbs 29, 25. Fear of man will prove to be a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is kept safe. Okay. Quoting another doctor, um, fear causes worry. Worry then makes you tense and nervous and affects the nerves of your stomach and actually changes the gastric juices of your stomach from normal to abnormal and this can lead to stomach ulcers and other problems. Uh, ulcers frequently flare up or subside according to the eels and valleys of emotional stress. Uh, a simple thing that we all have experienced to show what emotions can do, the emotion doesn't create the germ. Uh, and, and, the, and the germ is what has it, but what the emotion affects is our resistance. 
And uh, have any of you ever had, um, I bet everybody here has had a fever blister or a cold sore, one or the other? Okay, now I don't have fever blisters. Barbara gets them every now and then. I mean, I don't have cold sores, but I do get fever blisters every now and then. And um, some people get, any of you never had either? Okay. Oh. <laughs> Most people have. And what it is now, it's actually caused by a virus. And when you ever have a cold sore or fever blister, you get rid of it because your body defeats that virus, but the virus is still in your system. In other words, if you've got it once, you've got it for life. And what happens is your body beats it down and your immune system wins the battle. But then when it comes back is anytime you're in something that puts stress on your system. It may be a sickness like the flu or something like that. And it so weakens your system that, you're, that it, your immune system loses the grip on it and it comes back. Or if you're under a period of stress and you worry, you can wind up with a mouthful of fever blisters or cold sores or something of that nature. Uh, it's the same thing with tuberculosis. If you've come in contact with the germ and your body whipped it, it's under control. But you'll have that germ for the rest of your life. And if you're under a prolonged stress and you don't handle it right, uh, then it can actually break loose from your immune system. So I'm saying that, that anything that you allow to stress you for long periods of time weakens your immune system. And so it may be the actual disease or the germ, but it's the weakening of your immune system that allows it through. Okay, he goes on and he says, uh, uh, this study is backed up by a study of 15,000 patients treated for various disorders at Mayo Clinic, stomach disorders. Four out of five had absolutely no physical basis whatever for their stomach illnesses. Fear, worry, hate, supreme selfishness, the inability to adjust themselves to the world of reality were the largely the causes of their stomach illnesses and stomach ulcers. Stomach ulcers can kill you. According to Life Magazine, they now stand 10th on our list of all fatal diseases. And then he goes on to say, he gives a whole lot of things about business executives and says that one out of three is walking around with either some type of heart disease, digestive tract ulcers, or high blood pressure, and said that literally they will die an early death if they do not learn to control these things. And he makes a statement, what shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world and substitutes the word health and, and loses his health? All right, let me uh, give you one story that's in here that uh, you may have, have any, any of you read the biography of, of uh, John Rockefeller or you heard much, you, we're all familiar with the name, John Rockefeller? I didn't read the biography, but I know what happened. Okay. John Rockefeller. I don't know what you want to talk about. Was, uh, became at age 33 a millionaire. At 43, he was the richest man in the world. I mean, he just literally had it. He was making, by the time he was 53, he was making a million dollars a week, but that's back in the late part of the 1800s, coming into the 1900s when a million was a lot more than a million is now. In his early years, he, was, he had so much drive to get ahead that he worked extremely long hours, 15, 16 hours a day, six days a week. It's interesting, he taught on Sunday, he taught Bible class. But all he thought about was making money. 
And they said he was so obsessed with making money that when he uh, came out on top in a business deal that he would do a jig and dance all over the floor. On the other hand, if the business deal went sour, he might get sick and vomit and, and have to go to bed. And he was obsessed with success and making money. Uh, he bullied other people. He took advantage of every situation. He became probably one of the most hated people in the country. And Standard Oil became one of the most hated companies because of the things that they did. Everything was to make money. Uh, he did nothing for personal pleasure. He had no sympathy he did, on other people. He didn't respect his partners or anything if they did anything at all with pleasure, for pleasure. He felt they ought to work. To show you how cheap he was, they give an example. One time, he had this load of grain that was crossing the Great Lakes. And there was thousands and thousands of dollars worth of grain on there. Now, he could have bought $150 insurance for that grain, but he wanted to save the $150. So he didn't buy the insurance. Well, then there was a storm that hit and said he was concerned that he was going to lose all that grain. And so he, he didn't sleep. He threw up. He got sick. He would get obsessed by losing a few dollars. And it's for several hundred thousand. But all the time he's getting sick and he can't sleep, keep in mind, he's making millions a week. Okay, the grain makes it through. Okay. So the next time, though, he's got his mind up, I'm not going to go through that again. I'll pay the $150 for the insurance. So the next time the grain goes, he pays the $150 for the insurance. But the waters are calm, and he makes it to his destiny, and he becomes sick in his stomach and has to go to bed because he wasted $150. <laughs> well, that's no win situation. <laughs> so, that's how it says. Okay, drove blocks. I mean, he, wrote, he walked blocks every day to keep from... Paying the five cent toll, oh, there's like that. I mean, there's all kinds. He he was. Uh, <laughs> I could It's almost unbelievable what what he did. But anyway, what happened to him? To show you what can happen now. He's by the time he hits 53, he looks like an old man that's ready to die. And the lady that was gonna write his biography couldn't believe it when she saw him. And he had reached the point that he was so diseased and so sick that his doctor told him that he either better retire and learn to relax and quit worrying or he was going to die. And he didn't have any time left. And he reached the point where he could not eat any food at all. And the only thing he existed on for a period of, for, I forget the exact period of time, was human milk, mother's milk, and crackers. He couldn't handle anything else on his stomach. His digestive tract was shot. And so he could only handle, and they've got a name for it, and I'd never heard this before, but on mother's milk and crackers is all he could handle, and he was, he was on the verge of death. And they told him that he, that he would die, and, and they knew how he had brought it on himself. Well, he made a decision. And so his decision was he didn't want to die. He made a decision to immediately retire, he made a decision to quit worrying. And by the way, Rockefeller believed in God through these years and taught the Bible class. And the lady that held out some hope for him and had talked with him said one of the things she went to do his biography actually hating him based on what she knew about him. But she said when she saw him teach his Bible class, she couldn't help but be impressed that he obviously had some right things in him that he'd not been calling on. 
But anyway, he made the decision, I'm going to stop worrying, number one, I'm going to have some pleasure and do some enjoyable things, and I'm going to rest, and I'm going to do something else. He, he did that, and he started to get a little better. Well, as he started to get a little better, he made the next big decision in his life, and that is he's going to give his money away. And so he started looking for good causes to give his money to. And he gave, for example, the University of Chicago was about to collapse, and he bailed them out with billions of dollars. Uh, he looked for colleges and universities. He helped out the blacks. Uh, he helped out clinics and hospitals. He sent money overseas to China and other places. He was involved in vaccination programs. Uh, many of the medicines that we have that knocked out some child illnesses came about as a result of the research money supplied by John Rockefeller. He became a completely, totally, physically healthy person and lived to be 98. Wow. I mean, he just absolutely and totally reversed it. But I'm, I'm saying that obviously he reached that point of the verge of death when genetically he had to have it all going for him. He could never live to be 98. Yeah. But he had done that through just a combination of worry and anger and, and the drive and ambition and, and all of these qualities, but he reversed it. Well, again, his point was that, and by the way, he's got a number of stories like that in here. J.C. Pitty, uh, for example, is in here as an individual that, uh, that used to worry a whole lot and almost destroyed himself and just changed his whole way of life. Uh, and as a result of it, wound up a healthy individual that lived a long life. But then obviously, if that's true with him on that end, then we can see where any one of us, that if we plug in and we can gain control of our emotions, and, and in reality, think about it, isn't a lot of Christianity dealing with gaining control of our emotions? And everything that is called a bad emotion, is it considered sin from a Christian standpoint? Uh, don't be afraid of them that can kill the body, but fear him that can destroy the body and the soul. Uh, put your trust in God. Be faithful up to and including death, even if you do die. Uh, keep, your faith in, uh, keep your faith in God. You've got something better out there. And seek ye First, the kingdom of God, uh, be concerned uh, about today. If we actually put into practice, uh, even in a humanly frail and imperfect sense, the teaching of Christ in our emotions, we would be as healthy as it's possible for us to be. Now, I'm not saying you wouldn't have to exercise. That's, that's part of the program, too. And by the way, it became part of the program for, for John Rockefeller. He took up golf for example, in his latter years, and, and, and grew to like it and enjoyed it as a form of exercise. All right, uh, Excuse me, did we go on and cover uh, Matthew 7 after we did 6 last week? I don't think so. I think okay. we paused it. Was there a point there in chapter yeah, 7? Yeah, to me, that, that really helps me. Um, the 7th chapter and 9th verse, Which of you, if his son asks bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks a fish, will give him a stone? Snake, if you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask Him? I, you know, just that 
God, you know, that's a good comforting feeling. I know if my kids ask me anything that's within my power to do, I'm going to give it to them for their good. And to me, that's a real comforting verse, to know that God does have the power, and He does know what I need. Yeah, and I think, too, that passage, that's one of my favorite on prayer, because that uh, He tells us that God looks at us the way we look at our own children. And the only difference is He is... He's the perfect father. And we know that if our child wanted anything that was for his good, and it was our agreement that it's for his good, now sometimes the child wants something that he thinks is for his good and we know better. And I'm sure that with God there are times that we want things that we think is for our good and God knows better. But, but to know that God wants us, pardon me, to have whatever it is that's for our good. I believe that the entire world, like we talked about human suffering before and good people suffering, things of that nature, I believe the whole world is designed by God in such a way as to create souls that have the ability to mold themselves in the likeness of God. I think all of the things of life uh, are part of God's mold to help us be more humble, uh, more trusting, uh, more patient, more kind, more ever since. And, and the people that have the problems are the people that fight the most. Uh, that God, we got to keep in mind all the time that you and I, uh, and I have to fight it all the time, we're, we're brought up in this macho uh, American thing where success is determined in such a way. And yet we, we, we need to remember that the one that we're trying to follow didn't own anything when he died, did he? Mark? Uh, just an observation on what Barbara just just read. I mean, he's talking about his son asking for some necessity of life. He didn't say if, if your son asks for a Mercedes, he'll give him a, a little Toyota or right. anything. I mean, you know, he's talking about bread and you know, something to eat. Right. So I don't know if we can apply it to maybe a fashion yeah. that's not necessary. Right. Well, in you fact, can't apply uh, it to Mercedes want. may be the very worst thing for us. Right. Uh, the thing I was thinking about when you made that statement, Mark, is like James, Mercedes when the, some of these people were apparently complaining that their prayers weren't being asked, and he says, when you ask, you ask amiss, that you may spend it on your own pleasures. And on the other hand, John said, if you ask anything according to his will and that you know that you have it, then you'll have that petition. So if, if it's according to his will and you've got that kind of faith, he says you have it, but it has to be in keeping with his will. Well, we all know the essentials are in keeping with his will. Uh, and, and just like I think uh, another part of that is looking at the worst that can happen, just like I think, well, if... Uh, if I was in a situation where I, I think, well, I, I couldn't make the payments on this silly house. Well, the truth is that I could sell this house, pocket my equity, and pay cash for something that I could easily live in. So there's nothing to worry about there, unless I'm thinking I have to have uh, the thing. There, there, there's, there's, nothing, there's nothing there to, to, act, to actually worry about. Uh, when it comes to eating, uh, I know that most of the world hasn't been as blessed as we are. Uh, we are very frugal uh, on, uh, on, on everything, and yet, uh, correct me if I'm wrong on this, 
I bet we could cut our food bill down half if we had to and not miss any nutrition at all. Probably. Eat a lot of these. That's right. And probably uh, lots healthier. There are some nutritious foods. I'm saying that uh, we're, we're used to living at a certain level, but we could honestly cut. Uh, I'm saying the things that people worry about in our society would sound ridiculous to people mm -hmm. in Africa and some of the others. I mean that we have so much more than the necessities. Uh, I'm looking forward to visiting with uh, Enrique and uh, you know, in Mexico and, and looking at the situation. I already have an idea of what I'm going to follow and I find, and I think it'd be good for him. Uh, to to see that uh, and be reminded of the fact that uh, that in in many ways our life is like being on the freeway and you you've got your mind made up I'm going to keep the speed limit and, and the next thing you know you're right in every flow of traffic you know and 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 I think in life you can say I'm going to slow down you know I'm going to enjoy the flowers I'm I'm not going to worry but yet if you don't watch it uh, you wind up doing the opposite. And we have to, we have to, I think, just we may have hurt ourselves in this area. I liked uh, Max Licato's, or Licato, I don't know, Licato's uh, lessons. I, I think some of you said you'd already saw them over at the, and. Uh, we have the series. Okay, Lloyd, I, I got the one. You referred me to them, and Barbara and I watched them. And he has one on the Sabbath day, and pointed out that everybody needed a Sabbath. You know, we may not have to do it on Saturday, but that everybody needed a Sabbath, a day of rest, and the Sabbath was made for man. So whether it's Sunday or Monday or Saturday or whatever it is, uh, we probably would help ourselves. We need that period of rest where we can sit back and reflect and, and get our perspective with God and analyze things. Paul, just um, some of the verses we talked about last week, when he talks about um, not worrying about where your food's coming from and look at the birds in the air and Heavenly Father talks about the earth, takes care of them and how much more precious are you, you know, therefore he's going to take care of you and so forth. Well, I was just wondering, you know, I, I just thought about, you know, there's, there's areas in the world where People actually starve to death and mm -hmm. and and so forth. And I was just wondering, you know, that doesn't seem to go in line with. Well, but he's talking now to his disciples, right? When he makes that statement, yeah. and people that are recognizing him as God, right now, there is not a single solitary person starving in the world because of a lack of food. And, and all the things that's going on in R Rwanda right now is taking place because of hatred and a desire for political power and things like that. There's no reason for a single person to starve. When they had the Ethiopian thing a few years back, a food was rotting that we were sending over there, and they, and they wouldn't get it to the people. There was so much hatred and, and, and bitterness there. The, the answer to the problem is converting people to Christ. And, and one thing that I, that I will say I'm, that from everything I can read, wherever the gospel goes, Christians are pretty generous to step in. Like uh, during all of these efforts, Christians do step in. And it's, it's, it's not the atheist uh, or the unbeliever out here that forms these organizations 
to take food to these people. It's, it's Christians that do. And, and really, there is just a tremendous effort made to reach especially, you know, the God's people all over the world and then to go beyond that. But I think when those things happen, Mark, what, what I see is that God not interfering with free will, those that are submitting to his principles wherever they are are benefiting from that. But I can look at that and, and have it impressed on my mind all the more that Christianity is the only thing that works in life. And, it, and, and the only way to stop all of that is through uh, the principle of, of Christianity and as Christ is taught. And I think in Africa... So you're saying in order for God to step in and be these people, he would have to interfere with those people's free will if right. he doesn't do that. Right. They, are, they have chose a certain political system and a, and a certain way of life. And I know there's a lot of innocent people in the sense that they're caught up in that. But I'm saying also that, that, that people that wherever the gospel goes and, and people buy into it, I think in Mexico, uh, as more and more of those people become really Christians, and by that they've been Christians in name only as part of the Roman Catholic Church, but as they learn the gospel and, and, and it's being very effective there and they begin to put it into practice in their life, uh, you're going to see all kinds of changes taking place for the better there, and it'll be for the worse here if we get farther away from God. Uh, our Constitution, we owe our Constitution to, to Christians that believe the Bible. Uh, one of the biggest factors in our Constitution, the initial uh, that it borrowed from, uh, Roger Williams. Uh, you may remember him from American history, but he was persecuted for his religious beliefs by the Puritans who were very oppressive. And so he goes to Rhode Island, establishes a Baptist group, and the number one thing he pushed was freedom of religion and freedom for people, you know, and, and to choose whatever it is on, on your own. Well, as a result of that movement, a document was worded for those colonies that gave freedom of religion uh, and freedom of, of other areas of life to people. And he was influenced, his whole belief in freedom was based on his concept that all men are made in the image of God and that we're all equal and we all ought to have freedom. But it all went back to his, his belief in God. And it was from that thought that our principle of freedom of religion and all got into our Constitution. In other words, they didn't just sit down with a blank sheet when they wrote the Constitution. They were working from the other documents. Another one was the Mayflower Compact. And Puritans had a lot to say in that. But our Constitution has behind it the minds of people that were influenced by the Scriptures. And we wound up with something that was superior to anything else. And I think the same in those countries, that uh, Jesus is speaking to his disciples. And I think it's to the disciples. And, and, and when he says, blessed are those that hunger and thirst after righteousness, it's to those that hunger and thirst after righteousness. Seek and you shall find, knock and it shall be open, ask and you shall receive. It's to those that are seeking, those that are asking, and, and those that are knocking. And I think the calamities like that, from God's standpoint, are good in that they motivate people to seek and ask and knock. Any other comment? I was uh, just reading in Jeremiah this morning. Um, I, I guess the same type thing gives me problem that Mark just mentioned. Um, he speaks in chapter 13 and, and all the way through there. 
about the people not repenting. And, and he says, I will smash them one against the other, fathers and sons alike, declares the Lord. I will allow no pity or mercy or compassion to keep, to keep me from destroying them. But then he goes on down and he says, and if you ask yourself, why has this happened to me? It is because of your many sins. Mm -hmm. And then he goes on and he talks about how the people won't repent of their sins and that God has no choice but to destroy them. And so I guess you think of the innocent people or the children, they're just better off anyway. They're removed from that situation mm -hmm. and would be with the Lord. So just uh, um, you're in a situation. cleansing of the, town, uh, of the people because there's nothing but sin there. And... and Right, and when he, the flood was like removing a, a cancer from the human family. And the accountable people that died, they had the preaching of Noah. Peter refers to Noah as a preacher of righteousness for 120 years, and they rejected him. And so far as the children that would be innocent, he said, your children that did not know right from wrong to the Israelites, they won't suffer the calamity that you are. Uh, children suffer the consequences of their father's sins, but they don't suffer the guilt. Uh, a person only suffers the guilt of his own sins, but he does not, but we can suffer the consequences of somebody else's sin. And so, uh, from God's standpoint, we don't even know, I don't care whether it's AIDS or, or, or what other disease is out, from, from God's standpoint, you, you may be wiping out a cancer uh, in the human family. Uh, you, it may be causing a lot of people to wake up to the fact that this system over here doesn't work. And, and it may be causing people to seek something else. And I don't know how you can be in any part of the world, including Africa, and seek for something that's better than you got and not think in the direction of Christianity. Because there's no place on the globe where it isn't. You know, the, and and it, he still the only one that left behind an empty tomb. And it's, it's well known that wherever the gospel has gone, the people are more prosperous than any other, any other place on the earth. Uh, any other comments? Okay, here's a few uh, quickies to just on, on how to analyze and solve problems. Number one, when it comes to worry, he says that Contrary to what we say, you cannot do or think of two things at the same time. And he gives an example. He says, try to think of something you want to think about. Just think of some things about George Washington. And now be thinking of the Empire State Building. And you try to do them both simultaneous. And he says, you can't, you can't do it. You have to zero and you may jump all over the place, but your mind can only think on one thing at a time. And so he says that the, one of the best ways to handle worry about the future is to simply concentrate all your energies on the present. And that in the process of thinking about that, and he gives uh, example after example, like for example of uh, uh, people in the wartime that had had traumatic experiences, and the doctors had something they called occupational therapy. And what they did, the, the prescription was to work these people. I mean, they were, they were worrying themselves sick, and the prescription was to put them to work physically and, and to occupy them. And they said that time after time after time, people got better simply by being forced to work. Uh, he gave examples of individuals who themselves made the decision 
that when they were in a time where there was some problem over here, that they would actually work 12 and 15 hour days, and that by the time they got to the end of the day, they were too, so exhausted they couldn't worry. They just slept. And then they turned right around and concentrate on the task at hand. But he said one of the best ways to, to help you on the worry thing is to force yourself to expend every bit of your energies on the present. And when you catch your mind over here, just grab it and come right back here and focus because you can't do anything about this over here, but this thing that's right here in front of you, you can do something about it. And by doing something about it, the thing over here may never happen, or if it does, it may be something that you couldn't do, you couldn't do anything about in the first place. Well, I'll tell you something that's a good example of that too is, I, I heard a lot of stories about POWs who were in those, those camps like in Vietnam, and then they would, like one guy I remember, he would play golf in his mind just all day long. And he actually did it so much in his mind, he ended up being, when he got back, he was a whole lot better at golf and he hadn't played a stroke. Uh-huh. And I've heard the same type of stories, Mark. That's a real good example. That you can actually visualize reading novels. You can, uh, of something that is totally removed from where you are and you can visualize that in your mind. Of course, in the Christian, you get back to uh, reading the scriptures and all. All right, another thing he says is that when you've got a problem, instead of worrying about it, set about to gather all the facts on that problem. So